Now, the most important thing about you is not what you accomplish, but it's the person you're becoming. That's what Dallas Willard says. He is a Christian philosopher and author. He says, the most important thing about you is not what you accomplish, but it's the person you're becoming. The most important thing about you is not what you accomplish in your career. It's not the grades you get in school. It's not the awards and honors that your company and peers bestow on you for all your hard work. It's nothing that you can do. The most important thing about you is not what you can accomplish. It's about the person you're becoming. So this morning I would put it to you, what kind of person are you becoming? I mean, maybe think with me about the last five or 10 years of your life and the path that the Lord has been bringing you on. Can you plot points on that trajectory? Can you see discernible change in your life? What kind of person are you becoming? Stretch out that timeline into the future. Think about the next five years or 10 years or however long God gives you on earth. What kind of person do you hope to become? What kind of person do you wanna be? And I've been doing ministry now for 15 years and I've had these kinds of conversations with lots of people in all kinds of circumstances of life. Young guys getting married. What kind of dad do you wanna be? What kind of husband do you wanna be? Talk to couples in crisis. Hey, look, this is a crisis. Yeah, you're in a mess. But God's got a plan for your future. What kind of couple do you wanna be? And you know, I've yet to find a person who says, I wanna be miserable. I, I wanna just, you know, I wanna just find the deepest, darkest hole and wallow in it. Now, most people want to be good. They wanna do good. They wanna be kind and they wanna be respectful and compassionate. They wanna make a better life for themselves and for their family. And they get hard at work toward that goal. But you know, I think what Jesus wants to say to you and me today is that it's possible to be a good person, but to not be godly. You can be good, but not godly. And this morning, as we kind of zero in on the first five verses of this chapter, I'm gonna give you my sermon in a sentence for the full 10 verses that according to God's blueprint, a healthy church pursues the godliness that comes from living obediently to the truth of scripture. And that's the godliness you need. That's a godliness I need. That's the kind of life that's worth living, a life lived in obedience to the truth of scripture. And I'm gonna make that argument now, I guess, over the next two weeks. Today, I wanna warn you. If you'll let me do that, I, I want you to imagine we're at the dinner table. And I want you to pull your chair in close. And I want to lovingly warn you about the dangers of being good, but not godly. So if you've been with us these past seven weeks, you will remember the context of 1 Timothy 4. Paul had planted this church in Ephesus. A couple hundred, maybe 300 people gathering together week by week to worship Jesus. He'd spent three years there. 
establishing them in their faith, and then he'd gone on to preach the gospel in places where it had never been heard before. And when Paul had come back sometime later, what he found disturbed him. That the young Christians growing in their faith had gotten blown off course by false teachers. Men who had come into the church and were preaching a different gospel, a doctrine that wasn't in accord with what Jesus had taught and what the disciples had carried to the ends of the earth. And as a result, the church was confused. All kind of theological error, and as we see in 1 Timothy 4, morally confused. And so what Paul has done in 1 Timothy is try to alert Timothy to his task. I've left you behind in Ephesus while I go on into Macedonia to confront these false teachers, to get the church back on track in its priorities, building on the foundation that's the gospel, gathering to pray, that men and women would gather for worship with attitudes that are appropriate for the moment, that they would raise up from among them shepherd leaders who are gonna guide them to be more and more godly and committed to the gospel and servant leaders who embody the lifestyle of Jesus himself who came not to be served, but to serve. They give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, we were in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 16, where I told you that a healthy church upholds and holds out the gospel. That comes from what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 14, which I kind of take to be the thesis for the whole letter. I've written these things to you so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. I told you that to live a life that upholds and holds out the gospel for the world around us means that we live a life of faith, that we walk day by day by faith and not by sight, trusting in Jesus. I told you it's a life of holiness where we're gonna shun sin and pursue the way of life that upholds God to the world. I told you it was a life of love. And if I could go back and amend my message, I would probably take all three of those things and put them under the heading godliness. After all, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness is great, that he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed to the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the doctrine of godliness, the mystery of godliness, the essentials of our faith. And that begins Paul's continued focus on godliness. He says in 1 Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness is great. And then in the passage we just read in 1 Timothy 4.7, he tells Timothy, have nothing to do with silly myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. To your family, godliness is key. Godliness is an attitude that takes stock of who God is and what he said and then lives life in a manner that's appropriate for who God is and for what he said. You could also translate the word as piety or religion. But Paul is concerned with godliness, the doctrine that conveys godliness, and then the lifestyle that that doctrine produces in us. But between the doctrine of godliness, the mystery of godliness is great, and the call to pursue godliness Paul sandwiches the situation Timothy was facing in Ephesus, which was not godly. It was ungodly. And I think Paul does that out of concern for his protege. That Timothy was there in that church, 
taking stock of all those sweet people. A few hundred people, confused, reforming, getting back on track, but still processing the turmoil they had gone through as a church family. And if I put myself in Timothy's shoes, I have to think that some mornings he woke up with his head in his hands. What a mess, God. Why have you left me in Ephesus? And Paul tells him exactly why. I've left you in Ephesus to preach the gospel and to train yourself for godliness so that you could pay close attention to your life and doctrine and by doing so, save yourself and your hearers. We're gonna see that next week in 1 Timothy 4.16. But before Paul can get there, he has to comfort Timothy's disquieted spirit, tell him that what he's facing should not surprise him. He says in verse one, the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart the faith. And later, are you with me? In later times, some will depart the faith. Now the word Paul uses for depart the faith is a technical word. It's apostatize. They will reject the truth of the gospel and turn their back on God. What Timothy was facing in Ephesus was not a tiny blip on the radar of these people's faith. It was full-blown rejection of God. And Paul named it as such, and he explained to, G to Timothy why that shouldn't alarm him. He said, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart the faith. Now, we know who these people are. We've been reading this book carefully. And so you'll remember back in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul calls these people. What was that? We're talking about deceitful teaching of demons. That sounded like one, okay? We're about to, we're about to do some spiritual warfare. Now, we know who these people are. Paul called them back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, those who want to be teachers of the law, but don't know what they're talking about. In chapter 6, verse 5, he's going to say they're people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, who think that godliness is a means of material gain. 1 Timothy 6, 5. These are who these people are. They're false teachers who have rejected the faith. Paul says, don't be surprised. The Spirit says... This is gonna happen. I think Paul has in the back of his mind the words of Jesus, who in Mark 13 or Matthew 24 tells his disciples that don't be alarmed when false prophets and false messiahs arise. They're gonna to try to lead you astray. And if possible, they'll even lead astray the elect, God's chosen people. I think Paul also knows that the Spirit says this because the Spirit has spoken through him a word of warning to the elders of the church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Luke tells us that on his way back to Jerusalem, Paul called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him in a little port city called Miletus. And when he was talking to his friends, he told them in Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. The Spirit explicitly says, in later times, some will depart the faith. And Paul looked at the situation in Ephesus, and he saw the telltale signs that what the Spirit had prophesied was coming true. What's going on in your church is that people are abandoning the faith just as the Spirit says. Now, Paul had two lines of evidence 
for this statement. The first was the source of their teaching. You saw that there in 1 Timothy 4, 1. Some will depart the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Look, when those teachers stood up to speak, they weren't simply speaking their own words. They were sharing a message that was totally demonic, contrary to every good thing the Lord has spoken in his word and through his teachers. Paul consistently tells Timothy to teach the sound doctrine, the words that comport with sound doctrine. Paul says in chapter one, that the aim of our charge is love, which proceeds from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. Right theology produces a clean conscience where you're able to live your life openly before God and man. But that's not the teaching that's being shared in Ephesus. These false teachers are doing Satan's bidding by teaching doctrine that doesn't lead people to live openly and freely before God. It leads their conscience to be seared as with a hot iron so it no longer feels the difference between right and wrong. Rather, they do whatever feels right or seems right in their own eyes. You do understand that that is Satan's main way of working on you, don't you? And Satan hates God. He, he hates God like you can't imagine. All the things that warm your heart towards the God who made you and loved you and gave his son for you are things that Satan finds despicable. He looks at God's kindness and he sees weakness. And so he hates God so much that he does everything he can day in and day out to subvert the plan of God in the world. It started from the very beginning. God created a world, put people in it, and Satan got to work. He deceived Adam and Eve by whispering in their ears, hey, you'll, you, God, just, God knows that in the day you eat of this tree, you'll be like him, you'll see the difference between right and wrong, and he's jealously holding on to that power over you. Take and eat, and then you'll be like him. And that deception got in their ear and worked into their heart, and they led, and it led them astray to disobey God. And that's the way Satan continues to work on the descendants of Adam and Eve. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Satan holds mankind apart from God in his grips. Paul says that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Every day, Satan goes to work keeping people from seeing the truth about God. Because if people see the truth about God, what will they do? If, they, if people catch a glimpse of God and his glory, if they come to know the compassion that he's shown to us in Jesus, there's no appropriate response other than falling on their face and worshiping him, acknowledging him to be the God who's worthy of all that we have and all that we are. And Satan does not want that. But occasionally, the spirit of God works on people, overpowering Satan's grip. And in a miracle of God, 
makes us new, opens our eyes, calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we end up in a church like this. And so having lost his grip on us, he goes to work every day trying to claw us back. The way he does it is by inserting things into our minds that create doubt about who God is. These false teachers were unwittingly doing his bidding in it only for themselves and what they could get out of it. They're glad to tell people anything and everything as long as it'll gain them a following. And they were leading people right to hell. So Paul looked at the situation in Ephesus and he saw the source of the teaching and he said, don't be surprised. The spirit explicitly says that in later times, some are gonna depart the faith. But it's not just the source of the teaching, it's the content of the teaching. And you saw that when Paul told Timothy what these teachers do. They forbid marriage and they demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods. Now, I, I try to wrap my mind around the motivation that would lead a person to encourage people not to get married. I know marriage is a complex thing, okay? And not everybody should get married. But I just wanna say for a second, and my wife's not here, and she doesn't listen to my sermons when she's at work. So this is not about brownie points. But if you guys wanna tell her that I said this, you can't. Marriage has been one of God's greatest gifts in my life. It is a daily source of sanctification because there are times when I'm glad to hide my sin from God, but my wife sees it and lets me know about it. And so she makes me do what I don't wanna do. She makes me own up to my sin. I love being married. There is nothing I would rather do than marry my wife over and over and over again. And I mean that genuinely and sincerely. So I can't quite comprehend why a person would say, y'all shouldn't get married. Neither can I understand why they would forbid certain foods. I love food. And the word Paul uses for food is the Greek word for meat. And I love this world with brisket and sausage and bacon. And I don't wanna give that up. But that's exactly what these teachers were saying. Give up marriage, give up meat. What they're advocating is what scholars of religion and ethics call asceticism. Asceticism is the practice of doing physical, physically discomforting things to your body to gain some kind of spiritual benefit. So some people would sleep on a wooden board, depriving themselves of the comfort of a bed to somehow remind them how a pitiful wretch they are. People drink only water, or maybe they'll fast for extended periods of time for some kind of spiritual benefit. And there are times when asceticism is appropriate. And God sometimes has to put us in conditions of physical suffering so that we can gain spiritual fruit. You ever been laid up in bed with a bad back? That's when God will deal with you hard, didn't it? He brings to mind all the things about your life that need to change. But asceticism in the early church was a major problem, and the church had to fight the battle against asceticism on two fronts. The first was from the Judaizers, Jewish Christians who advocated 
returning to the Old Testament law of Moses. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter one when he just flat out says, what's up guys? Why are you so quickly abandoning the gospel that you first received? Why are you so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ? As if that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. These Judaizers were Christians who had come to trust in Jesus for salvation, but that they were telling the whole church, if you really want to experience the blessed life, you've got to trust in Jesus and you also have to take for yourself all the Old Testament law. You've got to adopt the dietary restrictions about shellfish and pork and babies boiled in their mother's goat milk, you know, and all those kind of strange things that you and I know nothing about. So you've got to take on those dietary restrictions for yourself. You have to take on for yourself the boundary marker of circumcision. You have to honor the Sabbath day. They were making this obedience to the law a condition for salvation. But then on the other hand, the church had to deal with a form of asceticism that came from Greek philosophy. Greek philosophers believed that the world was made up of both spirit and matter. Matter, our flesh and bones, was evil. And the goal of the good life is to escape the bounds of our embodied existence and live on the spiritual plane. And some early Christians took this Greek philosophy, this dualism, baptized it and tried to make it fit with Christianity. They said, since Jesus died on the cross and was raised by the spirit, and we know we're gonna live with him in heaven forever, our body's just a skin suit for what matters most, our soul. And so what we do here on earth is fairly insignificant. Let's do what we can to shun our physical existence and to live in the spiritual realm. And so they would say marriage is of the earth. Jesus said, they're not given in marriage, neither are they married in heaven. So let's go ahead and start living out our heavenly reality now. Let's give up our marriage vows. Before the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve only ate vegetables. So let's give up meat and live in that perfect pre-sin condition, which was as close to heaven as you could get on earth. That's what these false teachers were advocating, an asceticism that shunned the things that God had made. And Paul said, when you think about this, Timothy, I want you to see it for what it is. People who give themselves to this kind of rigorous moral life may have the appearance of godliness, but they are denying its power. There's a form of asceticism that's great. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself and follow me. We're called to self-denial, but the self-denial Jesus has in mind is a self-denial that draws us closer to him. False teachers in Ephesus had done is pile up a list of regulations that push them further and further away from God and what he had given his people and the blessings. Paul says, everything created by God is good. This makes no sense. Why would any teacher forbid what God has called good? I think when Paul says this, which is really, if you think about it, an amazing statement, just matter of fact, everything God created is good. Where do you get the right to say that? 
Where do you have the confidence to look a group of people in the face and tell them everything God created is good? Well, I think first off, it came from what Paul knew God had said at creation. In Genesis 1:29, on the sixth day after God had made all of the earth and all the animals and people, he said to him, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw all that he made and it was very good indeed. Everything God made is good. Now, God created the world and put people in it and Satan did his work of deceiving and they departed from God's plan. And it's true that the Old Testament contains the law of Moses, which is God's word to his people. But Moses' law has to be understood in the specific context it was given. And the prohibitions against certain food were intended for a very specific purpose. Don't eat shellfish, don't eat pork, don't eat baby goats boiled in their mother's milk, because I want you to understand the kind of holiness, the standard of holiness I require of my people. I'm holy, so you also must be holy. God also gave his law to his people to mark them out as distinct from the world, but here's the deal. If these false teachers who are advocating this kind of asceticism really thought long and hard about the gospel, they would see why their approach made no sense. While God gave dietary restrictions to the old covenant, when Christ came, he fulfilled the law and abolished it. And he lived a perfect life. He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He rendered it obsolete in obeying every one of its commands and then dying on the cross to do something that the law itself could not do. The law could never declare a person righteous or make them righteous. All it could do was allow for forgiveness and that given repeatedly every time a person sinned. Jesus offered a once for all sacrifice and inaugurated a new covenant and a new creation. And in that new creation, his people have a different approach to things that God's made. Think about this, in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter is sitting on the rooftop of a man named Simon, who was a tanner who tanned hides in a city called Joppa. And as he was praying, about the work that God had called him to do and about the spread of the gospel and about whatever else Peter prayed about. He had a vision. And in the vision, he saw a sheet descending from heaven and on the sheet were all kind of unclean animals. And as he watched it lower from the sky like Noah's Ark coming out of heaven, he heard a voice. He said, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, looked at all these unclean animals and he said, no way, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And he tells him again, Peter, eat. He says, no way, Peter, eat. And finally, God explains it. Peter, don't you dare call unclean what I've called clean. And about that time, there's a knock on the door downstairs and it's a men sent from a guy named Cornelius a Gentile who had a vision himself was told to call for Peter who came to where um, Cornelius was and preached the gospels. The Holy Spirit fell and the Gentiles were saved. That God's way of dealing with mankind is not about the foods we eat, 
That God doesn't judge with partiality on the nations of the earth, but he's creating for himself a people out of every nation, tribe, and language. That what establishes a person right before God is not the food they eat or the lineage they come from, but it's their heart towards him. Whether they accept and believe the truth of the gospel, that we are sinners separated by God from our sin. Unless we turn to Christ and repent from our rebellion, we're doomed to an eternity spent apart from him. But Christ died for us and extends to us the offer of forgiveness of sins and adoption into God's family and the promise of life with him forever. That's the key. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 15, when the Pharisees and scribes were charging him and his disciples with disregarding the traditions of the scribes and the elders because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And so Jesus gathered a crowd. When they'd all gathered near and they could hear, he said, Listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That defiles a person. And then the disciples came up and told him, Don't you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard this saying? But Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, they both fall into a pit. Then Peter said, well, then explain the parable to us. Do you still lack understanding, he asked? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. These are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Eating meat does not defile a person. Getting married does not defile a person. Defile means render you incapable of receiving the mercy and grace of God. The only thing that can keep you from receiving God's infinite mercy and grace is the pride and arrogance of your heart that refuses to admit what God sees. That says like these false teachers, you know what? I've heard about Jesus, but I'm happy to be good. I'm happy to prop myself up with my righteous life, with all the good things I've done. I don't need repentance. I don't need humility. I don't need faith. And I wanna warn you, that being a good person and not being godly will lead to disastrous consequences for you. It's appointed once for man to die and after that comes judgment and you will give an account for your life. And all the good things you've done will amount to nothing before the piercing gaze of a holy God. Even your righteousness is filthy rags. If God were to pull out the Ten Commandments and to go over with you and say, hey, let's talk for a second about the type of person you're becoming. What would he see? Well, I've never killed anybody. You have you lied? Have you, like Jesus said, had anger towards your brother and then been guilty of the law? And what about the fact that if you're guilty in one dimension of the law, you're guilty of it all. 
No, every one of us, the best of us, the person with the most outwardly righteous life has nothing to offer God but a humble and a contrite heart comes to him for mercy and grace. Listen, I know that this passage seems like a stretch for people like us. The deal we're facing is not false teachers telling us to not get married or to not eat meat. Though some people feel strongly about the second one. The reality is the challenge we face is no different. That every day Satan goes to work peeling us step by step away from the truth of the gospel. He wants us to buy into what's prevalent in our culture. There's an attitude, an air of moral relativism. It says there's no objective right or wrong, but each person is fine to do what's right for them. Our responsibility is to be nice, to not judge, to not offend. But being nice, it's not godly. Godliness is defined by God in his word. So what we need to do is give up our satisfaction with being good. To not get in the habit of piling up for ourselves, either in mental checklists or on our journals, all the good things we've done, like recording our daily act of kindness or comparing ourselves to the schmuck who lives down the street. What we need to do is get in the habit of coming humbly before God and saying, Lord, what do you see in me? Search me and know me. See if there's any unclean way in me. Because here's the sad truth, and this is what has wrecked me over the last 24 hours as I've tried to finish this sermon. Churches in America are full of people, full of good people. Good church people. People who show up wearing the right clothes, a smile on their face. They look like they belong here. They're good, they're good people. But they're like the man that one pastor talked about who came into his office and sat down across the desk from him and said, Pastor, tell me, is it possible for me to be a Christian but for my life to never have changed. So you pastors get asked all kinds of questions. Most of them are hard. That one is not. It is impossible for you to be a Christian and to have never experienced a change in your life. You don't slip into the kingdom. We enter by repentance which is turning away from a life of sin and faith, which is turning towards Christ. It's 180 degrees. And the challenging thing about this man is that he happened to be a faithful church member, a regular tither, a Sunday school teacher, and a deacon. And here he was in his pastor's office saying, Pastor, is it possible for me to be a Christian and to have never experienced a change in my life? And it scares me. But because if it's possible in one place, 
whether Ephesus 2,000 years ago or Dolphin Way Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama 20 years ago. It's true everywhere. And so this morning, I want to warn you. Don't settle for being good. Be godly. Live your life obediently to what God has told you in his word. Come daily again and again to Jesus, confessing your sin and asking him to renew in you a spirit of forgiveness. Wake up every morning, not content with living in your own strength, but desperate for the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life that you know he's called you to. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus to save you from your sins, God brought you here today so you could get right with him. He wanted to challenge you with the reality of your sinfulness and there is nothing you can do to save yourself. You can never be good enough. You can never do enough to prove to God that you are worthy of his salvation. But God did this, that while you were as far from him as you could be, while you were his enemy, he gave his only son, Jesus, to die for you. God has established once and for all how he feels. He has done the unthinkable to rescue you from your life of sin. So this morning, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't settle for being the person you've always been or turning over a new leaf or trying harder tomorrow. Admit to God what he already knows, that you need his help, that you need to be saved. And ask him to work in your heart this morning. Or maybe today is the day when you're fed up with being good, that you know that there's gotta be more to the Christian life than what you're experiencing. And you are ready to turn your back on your own righteousness, on every prop that you would use to convince God that you're worthy. You would trust in Jesus. I would love to talk with you about that. Let's ask God to help us.